Tuesday uh, is, a, is a pretty big day. Does anybody know what Tuesday is? So I, I thought I heard somebody say it. Anybody know what Tuesday is? Spring, spring yeah, uh, springtime starts. Man, you guys clearly aren't as excited about this as I am. Like Tuesday is the start of spring. Spring is my favorite time of year. Now, it hasn't always been my favorite time of year. I, I grew up, I spent a lot of time as a kid in, um, in Florida and in the coast of South Carolina where it was super muggy, super hot. So fall was my favorite time of year because it meant some respite from the heat. But then I spent seven years in the Pacific Northwest where winter is this long tunnel of gray and you just can't wait to get out of it. And when spring came, it was just like this joyous moment. I remember I lived in Canada for four and a half years and when these little flowers were starting to poke their head out of the snow, it was just like this, <laughs> like there's light at the end of the tunnel and my heart would just rejoice. I'd get so excited. And even though I've moved back to the South, spring continues to be like my favorite time of year. Uh, my wife and I do a lot of gardening. So it's this time of year, in fact, all weekend, that's what we did. I, I get to get in my backyard, I get my hands in the dirt, in this little patch of land that has just been brown and gray and looking dead just starts to kind of come to life as new growth starts to spring out of the soil and the trees start to blossom. These trees that have just been gray and lifeless start to take on new looks. There's this, uh, this beautiful Bradford pear in our backyard that has these white blossoms all over it and the sun sets behind it, makes it look like it's on fire. It's incredible. I love springtime. It's not just the changing of the seasons, though. For my family, spring is this really special time uh, because it's the time that my wife and I get to celebrate the birth of all of our children, like starting in March. We have a birthday in March. We have a birthday in April. We have a birthday in May. It's like we're entering into the season of birthdays and celebrating God growing our family. And so I love springtime. You know, springtime is not just something that is special to, to my family. I believe that springtime is this really significant and special time of year for the people of God, for followers of Jesus. Because see, in springtime, we begin to focus our energy towards Easter. We focus our attention toward Easter. Now, Easter has kind of taken on this kind of cartoonish element in our culture. You know, there's like this oversized bunny that lays eggs and brings baskets, and it's just weird, and we don't know what to do with it. But Easter is so much more than a bunny. <laughs> Easter is so much more than eggs. Easter is this celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I, I believe that Easter is this time where we celebrate a new way of living and a new way of experiencing life that are all due to Jesus' triumph over death and his resurrection. And I believe that Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is the most significant day, not just of the year, but I believe it is the most significant day, the most significant event in the history of the entire uh, planet, in the, t the history of, of the earth. Like, the resurrection of Jesus is that significant. And I know, you know, if, if you're sitting in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going, well, of course you feel that way. You're a Christian. Well, you know, I, I believe the implications uh, of the resurrection of Jesus are far reaching, whether you're a believer or not. And so we're beginning a new series today to kind of start stepping towards Easter, to start stepping towards resurrection, to embrace it. And so, you know, there's three Sundays until Easter and there are kind of three days involved in the resurrection story. Of course, the first day is, is Friday. It's the day that Jesus is crucified, the day that Jesus dies on a cross. And then the, the second day would be the Saturday, and that's the day that Jesus' lifeless corpse laid in a tomb, and it felt as though hope was lost. And then there was the third day the day of resurrection, when Jesus rose back to life and conquered death. And so for the next three Sundays, we're gonna be looking at that as we move towards Easter, and then beyond that, we'll celebrate resurrection. But today, we're focusing on the Friday, that moment at the cross where Jesus 
died. And you know, it, it's kind of interesting that, 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 that the cross, this instrument of death, has found its place as the centerpiece for the Christian faith. And I think it's super important because, listen, if, if we want to get to Easter and, and embrace life, if we want to embrace the life that comes, the life that is unlocked in resurrection, then we have to come to terms with the reality of death. If we want to celebrate resurrection, we have to deal with death. You see, because resurrection is not the same as birth. Like, we've all experienced birth. If you're sitting here in this room, you experienced birth, whether or not you remember it, I don't know, but I, you know, I've watched some kids be born. We've all experienced birth. Birth is life that is, it's brand new life that is coming into the world. And resurrection is life that actually comes out of death. So it's a little different. But resurrection is also not reincarnation. You know, reincarnation is a very uh, common worldview all over the world. And it's this idea that when you die, that your spirit is reincarnated into another physical form, whether it's human or animal or something else. And what determines what you are reincarnated as is how you lived your past life. And so you see in this cycle of death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth, that is reincarnation, what they're looking for is escape from death. Reincarnation gets you into this mindset where you are just trying to escape from death, and that is the ultimate goal. But you see, resurrection does not seek to escape from death. No, resurrection turns around and looks death in the eyes and overcomes it and conquers it. Big difference there, huge difference. And so we're going to take a look at you know, this place of death where Jesus, the one who resurrects, doesn't just try to run away and escape death. Instead, he turns around and looks at it and overcomes it. And we're gonna take a look at the way that he overcome it at this moment of the cross. Now, the cross can be a confusing, confusing teaching in our day. It can even feel offensive at times in our day. And so we're gonna do our best to try to understand what is happening at the cross of Jesus. And what does it have to teach us today, 2,000 years later after Jesus has died. You know, we've looked at the story, right? We had Rachel come up and read Luke 23. We've all, we've seen this man, this man Jesus, who lived this selfless, loving life of service towards others, carrying an instrument of death down a street on his shoulder. We've seen the women who are weeping there beside him as they know he's going towards his death and the way that he addresses them with compassion. We have heard the radical words of forgiveness that Jesus speaks from the cross as he forgives his murderers as they're in the act of murdering him. We have seen the mercy, mercy that Jesus shows the common criminal that's hanging on a cross right next to him. And we have seen Jesus submit his spirit to his father in the anguish of death as he breathed his last it's a story that, that most of us, many of us, have heard our entire lives. And I would guess that most of us in here, if we haven't heard our whole lives, we're at least somewhat familiar with this story of the man Jesus dying on a cross. And so what do we take from all of this today? And I think uh, Romans 5, I think, is going to help us unpack some of the significance of this moment of Jesus' death on a cross. So Romans uh, was written by a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul was not a believer in the resurrection of Jesus until he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and then he gave his life to advancing the purpose of the risen Lord Jesus. And this letter that we're going to read is a letter that, that Paul wrote to a group of early Christians in the city of Rome. And so we're going to read chapter 5, it's page 770 in our Bible, starting in verse 6. Paul writes this, he says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, remember that word powerless, it's important, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, 
Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, hold on to that word, it's important. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is the word of the Lord out of Romans 5. Now, I, I want to just address, I know I've just read the word wrath, and sometimes that just sends our minds spinning. Don't let that put you in a tailspin right now. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about that word and what that means and all of its implications. So, you know, here's this passage where Paul is writing to these early believers, and he's trying to help them see the bigness of the significance of Jesus's death on a cross. And now we could go in, and I could start kind of unpacking some of these words and what they mean in the original Greek and all this stuff, but I really felt this week as I was wrestling with looking at the cross that God just wanted me to use a simple story to help us begin to understand what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 and what was happening on that hill as Jesus died. So this week on Tuesday, um, I get a text from my wife, Amy, at about 10 a.m., and we, we text one another frequently throughout the day, but we, we homeschool our kids, and so my wife is at home with three kids all day by herself, God bless her, and so sometimes she just needs an outlet, so she'll just text me to let me know what's going on. At 10 o'clock, she sends me this text, and she says, hey, Torin, Torin is my middle child, my, my, my youngest son, and she says, Torin doesn't want to go to PE today. They go to PE with a bunch of other kids. And she said, he, doesn't, he says he doesn't want to go because whenever he goes, his older brother's mean to him there. He makes fun of him and he punches and kicks him and he doesn't want to go be in the middle of that. And I'm like, ah, like my heart breaks for little Torin. I'm kind of mad at Elijah. And I'm like, I'm sorry, babe. You know, text her back. Well, then she texts me back at around one o'clock and she says, hey, I took Torin with me and dropped Elijah off. But when we went to pick Elijah up as he was getting in the van, Torin spit in his face. And I'm like, ah, oh. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me. Now I'm like mad at Torn and kind of feeling sorry for Elijah, you know? And the rest of the day, I kid you not, just played out like this. It was like text after text from my wife. Hey, listen to what just happened. Listen to what Torn just did to Elijah. Listen to what Elijah just did to Torn. They were just like at each other's throat like all day long. So five o'clock, I get off of work and Amy sends me this text and she says, hey, I, you're gonna have to deal with them when you get home. This is on you. Like you're gonna come home and deal with what's been unfolding throughout the day. And I'm like, okay, I'll deal with it. You know, I get in the car and I'm driving and here's what I feel, honestly, as I'm driving home. I just feel this kind of tension inside of me. I'm like, how do, how do I deal with this? I no, I, I, no one, there's no manual on how to be a dad and how to deal with sibling rivalry. Like, how do I deal with this? You know, it's like, Honestly, they're both guilty. They've both been at each other. So, I mean, do they both deserve like spankings? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to go home and spank both of them? Is that gonna solve anything? Is that gonna teach them anything? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm driving home, like in this tension, thinking back and forth on what I'm gonna do when I get home with my boys. I pull into the garage when I get home and Amy comes out to meet me in the garage and she meets me at my car door and she says, hey, uh, Torn's in the kitchen. He's sitting on the counter and she was, she was like, he's at his end. Like he's in there just being mean, just saying mean things. She goes, but I think you need to just pick him up. Like you're going to take him to the room to spank him and just hold him. And I'm actually going, what? Like, why, why would I do that? But you know, my wife's smarter than me. So I did what she said. I came inside. <laughs> I, I walk in the door and as I walk in, Torrent is mid-sentence and bad-mouthing Amy, my wife, you know, and he's like, mommy, I... and I walk in and he looks at me and I give him that like dad look. I'm like looking at him and he kind of stops. He freezes mid-sentence. I drop my backpack. I pick him up. I scoop him up in my arms off the counter and I walk back towards our bedroom and he's frozen, like mortified, you know? And I go back and I, I sit down on the bed with him and I just hold him. And nothing really happened. He was actually kind of confused. He kind of sat there. He's like, he goes, dad, are you okay? And I didn't say anything. I just sat there and I held him. 
And I think the discomfort of me just holding him was too much for him, so he tried to change the subject. His birthday was the next day, it was Wednesday. And so he starts talking to me about his birthday presents. He goes, hey, Dad, you wanna hear what I think I'm getting for my birthday? <laughs> and I grab his shoulders and I pull him away from me and I looked him in the eye and I said, Torn, I don't care about your birthday presents. And he just starts weeping. <laughs> he just starts crying. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I did the right thing. Did I just hurt myself? I don't know. And so I'm looking at him crying. And I said, I said, Torin, do you know what I care about? He goes, you care about me, dad? And I'm like, yes, I'm the best dad in the world. Like, how did I pull that off? I don't know, that was amazing. Like, wow. And so I'm like, look, I'm like, that's right, bud. I care about you. And I said, tell me about your day. Tell me what's been going on. And, and so he just starts telling me all the things that his older brother has done throughout the day to hurt, hurt his little heart. And so now I can hear his older brother playing in the next bedroom. Guess what I'm feeling toward his older brother now? I'm like ready to bring down fire on him. Like I go in there, I get him, I'm Elijah, you come in here right now. And I said, Elijah, I want you to tell me what has happened today. And he starts telling me all the things that Torin has done throughout the day. And so now I'm like, ah. Oh. So finally I look at both of them. I said, hey, Elijah, I want you to man up. I said, be a man and take ownership of your day. I said, I don't want to hear about what Torin did. You tell me what you could have done differently today, the things that you did that you should have done differently. And I was really proud of him. Like, he did it. He started going, he said, I, you know, I shouldn't have kicked him. I shouldn't have punched him. You know, I shouldn't have scratched him that time. I, I, I know, it's funny, right? He's like, I shouldn't have called him the names that I called him. And I'm, as, as he's saying these things, though, I'm looking at Torin, and his little eyes are just like welling up with tears. And my heart's like breaking for Torn because I can see the pain that he's in at the hands of his brother. So then I look at Torn. I said, Torn, you need to man up and own up as well. What are the things you should have done differently today? And he did it. He said, you know, I shouldn't have spit in my brother's face. I, I shouldn't have broken his Legos. I shouldn't have told him that I hated him. You know, he's like naming these things that he did. But as they're going back and forth, I had this, this weird moment of this kind of juxtaposition of feelings. That in, in one sense, I'm looking at, at my boys and I'm looking at the heartbreak that they're feeling and the pain they're in. And I feel this deep well of compassionate love for both of them. As I'm looking at Torrin's hurt, I just love him. And I, man, I don't want his heart to hurt. I look at Elijah, I love him. I don't want his heart to hurt. But then at the same time, if you're a parent, you get this. If someone hurts your kid, you want to hurt them. <laughs> it's just a reality, you know? Like I'm looking at Torrin and I see the pain he's in and I'm like, man, I want to end the person that's doing this. But then I look over and it's my kid. It's like my kid is causing my kid pain. And so it's like this weird juxtaposition of compassionate love, but justified anger. And I'm like, God, what do I do? And in that moment, I felt like God began to unpack for me how he feels every day when he looks at humanity. That God looks at humanity and this is what he feels. I love what Paul says here. He says, while we were still powerless and while we were still sinners, and it began to hit me about my boys that those two statements were true about both of them. You know, both of them are sinners. They're both sinful. I, I, I mean, you look, it's no doubt they're both guilty, right? They've both wronged the other. They have both done things to tear down the other. They are both deserving of some kind of consequence or punishment. They're both sinners. And yet there's this other reality that I see at work as well in that they are both powerless, and here's what I mean by that. They are powerless in that, you know, Elijah and Torn, without some outside influence to help them, without some sort of outside influence to change the condition of their souls, if they are left to their own devices, then they inevitably will always seek to look after themselves first. And when they are wronged, they will always seek revenge or retaliation or retribution. 
Like if left to their own devices, that's what they're gonna know and that's what they're gonna do. They're powerless to change the condition of their heart without a parent to teach them or a God to save them. That's what they're destined for. And I began to see that this is the truth about all of humanity, both of these statements. Isn't it true? Like all of us have at one point or another in our lives done something to hurt another human being. Whether it was a careless word or remark or an intentional thing, that we did to hurt someone, we have all been on the offensive end of hurting another person. We are all sinners. This is the nature of being human. And yet there's this other thing that is at work in us as well, that God looks down and he sees that although we are all sinners, he also sees that we are all powerless to do anything about it. Now, this is kind of a hard thing for us to come to grips with because we like to think that we can change ourselves. But just let's just look around for a minute. You see, as, as we get older... As we grow older, you know, without outside intervention to help save our souls, we continue to function just like these two children that I'm dealing with. You know, as we get older, without outside intervention, we don't get any better. We just become better hiders and we become more elaborate in the way that we do the things. No longer do we kick and punch. You know, sometimes we do. But not all, no longer are we scratching or doing things that are so overt, but now we're doing things that are just a little more tricky, a little more hurtful, a little more harmful, and the stakes are a little bit higher. You know, we see this in society around us, don't we? I mean, we see it in our own lives. This, this powerlessness to fix ourselves is why relational intimacy is so hard to maintain. Because you get into relational intimacy and you start to get hurt, and what your first response is to take care of who? Me. Take care of myself. Someone hurts me, well, I'll either push them aside or I'll hurt them back. That's like our only way we know how to respond, but it doesn't just stop at interpersonal interaction, right? We see this on societal levels. We see this, this is why, this is why marriages start to crumble and fall apart because two people come together and they don't know how to sacrificially live for the other without the help of something bigger than themselves. This is, this is why politics doesn't really fix anything. Have you ever noticed that no matter which party we put into the office, we're still electing humanity and they still can't seem to figure out the problems? that no matter what happens, we're still at odds with one another. Corruption creeps in, greed creeps in, selfishness creeps in, ambition creeps in. That humanity, without the help of some outside influence, is powerless to change the nature of who we are. And I know some of you don't agree with that. Some of you think, no, 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 humanity, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it. And I could go on a long tangent about how we can look at why this hasn't worked over the course of history. If you want to talk more about that, come find me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about it. But I believe that God looks down at humanity and he sees that we are sinners and he sees that we are powerless. And I believe that he experiences the same sort of juxtaposition that I was feeling as I looked at my kids. In fact, Wednesday morning, I sat down with a group of friends and they were praying for me as a parent. So I'm like, man, I need help in this parenting thing. And they were praying for me. And as they prayed for me, I felt like God just gave me this picture of, his, of, of who he is. <laughs> he said, Aaron, you feel compassionate love for your kids. Aaron, you feel justified anger at them being hurt. He said, that's what I feel every single day. I see the hurt in my kids that I've created. And I have this compassionate love for them. I want to make it stop. He said, and I feel it's justified anger. Now, here's the thing. We don't like the idea of this word, this word God's wrath. You know, it's right there, Romans 5. Verse 9, you know, that we, we will be delivered from his wrath. But we're like, wait a minute, God has wrath. But here's the thing, wrath is just justified anger. And I believe all of us, all of us have experienced this. 
All of us have felt this, this craving, this desire for justice at some point or other. I mean, what does it do in your heart when you read about 17 innocent high school students being senselessly murdered? If your heart does not cry out for justice in that moment, then I question, do you have a pulse? Are you alive? Because when senseless evil reigns in our world, we all step up and say, oh, we need justice. It enrages us, right? And it should enrage us. See, we need a God who feels this, this, this justified anger about the things that make us angry. And yet we need a God who is perfectly just, who has the wisdom, who has the character and the integrity and the ability to deal with evil. We all long for a God that is just because we want him to deal with the evil out there. But the place that it makes us uncomfortable is that if he's gonna deal with the evil out there, he also has to deal with the evil that's in here. Oh, that kind of hurts a little bit. You see, the place of the cross, what we see is this God who is filled with justified anger, and yet he is overflowing with compassionate love. And as I was thinking about Torn and Elijah, and I was praying with my friends Wednesday morning, I felt like God gave me this image where he does the thing that I'm unable to do, where he sees his kids hurting one another. And if he was, if he was me, he would go, Torn, I know you're hurt, but don't spit in Elijah's face. Spit in my face. Elijah, I know you're hurt, but don't kick and punch Elijah. Kick and punch me. Take it out on me. I, I can take it. He can't take it right now. Take it out on me. Stop calling each other names and start yelling at me. Take it out on me. I'm big enough. I can take it. I just want you to stop hurting each other. I will step in and I will absorb all the vengeance that you're pouring out on each other. Pour it out on me. And so that's why Paul says, listen, while we were powerless and while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us and that Christ died on a cross. And now I know some of you go, now wait a minute, if, if God's filled with compassionate love, then why is Jesus the one that has to die? Why does he kill his son? But you see, you need to have an understanding of who God is and what he's like and who Jesus is in relation to God the Father. If you read through the Gospel of John over and over again, Jesus is gonna say things like, hey, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. He's gonna say things like, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, God, Jesus dying on the cross is not some sort of divine child abuse or child neglect. No, God says, I'll, I'll deal with it. God says, I will put on a human body. I will step into humanity as Jesus the Son and I will voluntarily lay down my life to end the brokenness and the suffering and the warring that is at work in the world. And so Jesus at the cross, it's like this crossroads of the compassionate love of God and the justified anger of God trying to lift the burden off of humanity. It is the demonstration of God's love. It's this beautiful place you know, it's this display, but the thing about the cross is it's not a display like what you see at a museum. You know, you go to a museum, and they have displays, and you look at it, and you go, hmm, that's interesting. But the display of God's love is not a place of just observing and then walking away unchanged. No, this display of God's love is meant to be interacted with. It's an invitation, something to step into. There is something that is happening that God is doing this with us. He's saying, hey, come on, come on, come on. This is why every time the gospel of Jesus is preached, both before he's murdered, when Jesus himself preaches it, or after he's killed and resurrected, every time the good news of Jesus is preached, it is accompanied by an invitation. 
And the invitation always goes something like this. It's like, hey, this is the good news. God loves you. He's come near in the kingdom. This is the good news. God loves you. He's been murdered on a cross. Will you believe and will you repent? This is the invitation. Will you believe it and will you repent? You see, believing is this place where we go, oh, Jesus, you're the son of God. You love me. I believe this. And repentance is this place where we begin to change our mind about some things. Now, repentance kind of gets a bad rap because I think it's been misused. The word itself has been misused. So I want to make sure we understand. See, repentance, repentance that comes after encountering the limitless love of God on the cross, repentance that comes after believing and receiving that love, it is not this obligatory duty. It's not obligation. No, it's an invitation. Repentance is not, hey, stop sinning so that God will love you. No, 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 no. Repentance is, hey, God loves you. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Now, will you believe it? And will you change your mind about some things? Repentance is this changing of our minds, really about two primary things. The first is changing our mind about the way that we view and perceive God. And the second is changing our mind about how we're gonna navigate this life. I'll deal with each of these really quickly and then we'll wrap up. You see, the invitation this morning as you encounter the love of Jesus is to believe it and to repent. And for some of you, it is an invitation to change your mind about the way you view or perceive God. I think some of us have been taught or we've been fed this narrative for much of our lives that God is angry and he's out to get you. That God is angry and he's out to get you. That God is not to be trusted. This is maybe true for some of you who call yourself Christians and some of you that do not. I've met many people who have identified as Christians for much of their life, and yet they feel like God is angry at them all the time, and therefore, he needs to be kept at a distance. I talk with many, many non-Christians, and the perception of God is that he is angry and out to get them. And you know, when you perceive that somebody is angry and out to get you, man, you're just stiff-arming them your whole life. Because why in the world would you want to let somebody like that get close to you? And so what we do is we keep God at a distance because the idea of intimacy with God or being close to God actually terrifies us. And so we would never open up to him. But the cross says, listen, God is not out to get you. He's out to save you, to help you feel his unconditional radical love that he has for you. The message of the cross is God loves you and the invitation is to change your mind about the way you view him or perceive him and take that stiff arm and soften it because as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And here's what I love about our God is that he knows how hard that is for us. He knows how much fear plays a role that when you've been told he's angry with you, how much fear plays a role in you keeping him at a distance. And I love, it says when we believe, look in Romans 5 verse 5, just jump back a verse from where we started. He says, listen, God's love, we have hope because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, God knows how hard it is for us to draw near to him. And so what does he do? He comes and lives in us through his spirit, empowering us to be able to lower the stiff arm and come closer to him and experience the depth of love that he has for us. And so some of you this morning, the invitation is to just believe it and change your mind about the way you've been perceiving God loosen your stiff arm. And if you need to ask for help, ask for help. He will help you. He longs to be near to you. The other form of repentance is changing our mind about the way we navigate life in this world. 
You know, the culture around us, the world around us will always tell us that the way you make it through this world is by self-preservation. Take care of yourself. Look after yourself. As long as you take care of yourself, everything else will be all right. That is the narrative of the world around us, but it is not the narrative of Jesus Christ. That is a narrative that is born out of the fear of death. You see, the fear of death tells us that we need to take care of ourselves and avoid pain, avoid suffering, avoid any hardship, avoid death as much as we can. Run from it, run from it, run from it. But here's the thing is the rest of the world is trying to escape from death. They live in perpetual fear of death. You see, but Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I want to tell you about a better way. Stop running from death. Watch what I do. I turn, I look at death and I say, you have no hold over me. Jesus lays down his life. He goes before us and he says, I want you to watch what I do with death because that's what I'm gonna do with death in your life. He said, I will conquer death. I will raise from the grave and I will bring new life. And so the invitation at the cross for us is to imitate Jesus, to stop always looking out for number one, but to do what Jesus says where he says, hey, if you wanna follow me, you will take up your cross and you will walk the life that I have lived you will lay down your lives for one another. No longer will you seek what's best for you at the cost of everyone else, but instead you will begin to seek the best for all those that are around you, no matter what it may cost yourself. Because you understand that those who seek to save their lives are gonna lose it. But those who seek to hold on to their lives, I mean, those who let go of their lives and lay down their lives, well, they will truly live. You see, this is the invitation of Jesus. And if you've been following him and yet you've been You've been functioning by the ways of the world, always trying to take care of yourself. He's going, hey, look at the cross. Look at my way. It's better. I've overcome death, and I'm inviting you to step into it with me. So this morning, we look at the cross, and there's this invitation. Let's change our minds about the way we perceive God. And let's ask Jesus for courage to begin laying down our lives daily for others. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go take communion with one another. It's on the bar. It's on the communion tables around the room. And as you take that bread, as you take that cup, it's this reminder of the radical, selfless love that God has for you. It is a reminder that we serve a God who does not sit by idly as evil reigns, but he acts in justice to take care of it by having compassionate love for all of us. And so what I wanna do, I've got a couple things for you just to wrestle through and pray together about as you take communion. So we got, I'm gonna put some questions up here on the screen uh, just some things for you to pray about as you get ready to go to communion. And it's just built on those two areas of repentance. I just want you to pray with one another and pray for one another. And so if you're in that place where you need God to help you change your perception of him, well, let somebody know. And just pray, God, will you help me believe in your compassionate love for me? And if you're following Jesus and you know that your tendency is to hold on to your life, well, let's pray this second prayer for one another. Jesus, give me courage to daily lay down my life for others. So I'll pray for us. We'll get communion. We'll pray for one another. If you need prayers from somebody, we'll have men and women at the respond banner. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you. Let's pray. Man, God, I love you. I cannot imagine trying to navigate this life without you. The things that you teach us are so counterintuitive to our flesh, to our desires, and yet they bring so much life. And we've seen these places throughout history, Lord, that when a group of people get a hold of your way of life, that amazing things start happening. 
And so, God, I pray this morning as we take communion, Jesus, would you commune with us? For those of us that have been afraid, man, would you draw near in your love? For those of us that have been clinging to our rights in our own life, would you give us courage to take up our cross and follow you? That we may be a display of your love to all those around us. We invite you, Lord, would you come as we commune and as we pray with one another. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.